Yo, is this seat taken? Uh, yeah, it is. Welcome to another episode of Is the Seat Taken? This week we're going to be discussing accountability and cancel culture. Uh, overall, there's been a lot of discussions happening around those two topics. Um, I don't know what happened in the world, but a couple of weeks ago, that was like my whole Instagram and Twitter feed was people talking about accountability and cancel culture. And, you know, I was seeing a lot of great content being posted from you know, people that I follow and that I really look up to. Um, I was also seeing a lot of funny memes. One of my favorite being, it's not cancel culture. If you're white, it's just sparkling uh, consequences. Right. Um, <laughs> I thought that was very, very funny. But overall, the, this is a topic of discussion that's been happening a lot in my life personally. And I really just want to talk about it. Um, I invited Molly of CHAD, it uh, stands for Chicago Hospitality Action Accountability Database. Did I get the two A's right? Uh, Accountable Actions Database. Okay. I almost got it. I always forget what the second A stands for. <laughs> um, it's a play on CHAD, like, you know, the dude, white bro CHAD, that's kind of like a meme. The play totally. On one of our members, her boyfriend's name is Chad, so it was kind of like yeah. a triple entendre. <laughs> yeah, I I always giggle that Reagan is her her name. I always giggle that her boyfriend's name is Chad, and she's just this like beautiful, empowering black woman dating a white dude who's who who is a good white dude, but his oh, yeah. name is his name is still Chad. Anyways, Chad Chad's been doing a lot of great work as far as holding the restaurant industry in Chicago and influencing other cities to do that well um, accountable. Uh, you guys have a whole spreadsheet that goes mm -hmm. in depth on all of these big name restaurants in Chicago and their take and their, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Reaction, if you will to the Black Lives Matter movement that was happening over the summer. Uh, some of them just put out, you know, very, how do you say it? Very, like, not specific statements mm -hmm. out. Generic. Generic was the word I'm looking for. They were putting out very generic statements out without having anything on the action side, it's like, okay, so you support Black Lives Matter, but what are you doing to actually support Black lives in your restaurants, you know? Um, so yeah, I just wanna, I wanna give you the floor. Why, the how, the what's, the where's, and the why's of the chats? <laughs> how did it start? Uh, when were you brought in? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself. So context, Chad started kind of in the wake of the beginning of the civil rights unrest last summer and also like within a month or two when the pandemic really hit and there were shutdowns. So the restaurant industry was crumbling 
multiple fronts, one being economically not having support, and then morally, a lot of issues that have been prevalent in our, in our industry for a long time that we knew internally but maybe weren't addressing uh, came to the public ground and people saw it. So that started initially as uh, two people, two of our members, just documenting um, first COVID-19 policies and reactions, and then also Black Lives Matter statements, um, as well as actions of accountability. The spreadsheet is broken down across demographics, so like what the restaurant is, uh, their leadership makeup, um, if they've received certain accolades from institutions or publications like Time Out or James Beard or Michelin, and then looking at these different topics, are there like statements of accountability, are there apologies, are there actions like rep reparable actions, whether that means mutual aid or donations, being a host site, a host a donation drive, that kind of thing. Um, I joined at the end of June of last year after the spreadsheet had been established. I found out about it through jo uh, Flavor Supreme, Joey who had been do doing a lot of uh, truth sharing and reposting on their own Instagram of people's experiences. And um, I personally worked at a restaurant that went through it as well and had been laid off. Um, my restaurant, my ex-boss, the same thing you were just talking about, posted the black square, but nowhere on the page or even the posts where this, the words Black Lives Matter. It was just like a very watered down generic statement that was just performance. It was just performance to maintain social capital, right? Um, so from there, Chad evolved, you know, weirdly, because um, progress is never linear. So it was a lot of us coming together, all holding a lot of grief because our whole industry was collapsing, um, but also wanting it to be better. All of us had been working at places that we had invested time and emotions and energy into. And we've also been through the industry enough to know that things don't really change unless you force them to. Like I personally had gotten tired of moving from job to job because the situation wasn't good. And yeah. that's just reality for the whole industry. Um, so coming together, we all shared like a lot of our experiences, did some brainstorming, it laid out some goals. A really important part of our coming together was doing a training with Ashton Berry, who's um, one of my favorite educators and leaders in terms of act activism within the industry. And she's, then also- She's great. I love her. <laughs> so there's a on pretty much every like research-based post that I make for Chad. Her Instagram lives are amazing. Like honestly, I take a lot of quotes from that and like learn a lot from that. Um, but yeah. we also did the, the training with the Mackenzie Mack Group, who specializes in boundary setting, uh, specifically in professional context. So like that was it wasn't an anti-racist training. It was more like foundational organizational values training. So us figuring out who we were, what we wanted, and how we were going to get there. Um, and then from there, it kind of evolved. The whole point of chat is to create this like community driven and led resource hub, whether that's for information, for actual resources like therapy that we're offering in collaboration with Art of Balance, hospitality workers. Um, it's constantly evolving. And the whole point is that it's not static. It's decentralized. If one of us has stuff going on in our life and we have to take a step back, the whole thing doesn't crumble. Anyone else can fill that position. Right now we're in a moment of growth and generation. So we're kind of, we're recruiting a lot of volunteers right now. All of Chad is volunteer led. None of us are paid at the moment, but we're hoping that changes soon. Um, but we're in a moment of growth and hoping to get more people on the team so we can expand our capacities, what we can offer, the projects we're doing. Um, yeah, from there, my background is specifically in sociology with a focus on the criminal justice system. Um, but getting jobs that pay well enough to pay off student debt with that is unlikely, as I experienced. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I fell into hospitality. Um, 
most of the people in our core group of members have very diverse skill sets from someone who's a licensed therapist, someone who's an excellent writer, someone who does graphic and web design, kind of crosses off a lot of boxes. In terms of our approach to accountability, it comes from the lack of it, I think, in the restaurant industry. Being an industry yeah. built on slavery and institutions of exploitation and white supremacy, there's never going to be accountability with how our business model is set up. They're just, the restaurant business model is predicated on exploitation. So it can't ever achieve equitable, equitable means or equitable ends if the means are not there to begin with. Right? Yeah. So you know, that famous quote from Audre Lorde, you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. So another big part of chat is imagination and like future building together because what we build after this, it has to be different and we have to use different tools. So a big part of what we do is also like arts facilitation around this. We've done art in the park. We've done some like stamp printing on people's clothes at some community markets um, throughout the summer, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to a couple of those. Uh, you just said a lot of great <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Um, what, can you go more in depth as to what accountability looks like for not even just Chad, but for you personally? Sure. Um, so for me personally, I come to this, the background in sociology, but also restorative and transformative justice. So understanding that accountability and healing are a process. It's not just like a destination, but it's a process that very much involves truth telling, centering the victim or the survivor. Um, it involves accountable actions, not just an apology, but like actual actions that can either repair or rehabilitate or further reconnect the community together. Um, a lot of social theories of like crime and deviance in terms of like academically are centered on the fact that social and community ties where you find higher rates of crime and deviance have broken down because there are no resources, nothing there to support people. There's no like healthy community, right? And so um, moving with that in our mind, healing has to involve everyone. It can't just be someone gets punished and we expect things will get better from there by leaving them on their own with no resources and no people to help guide, but that it's a process that we have to work through together. Healing can't be achieved individually, it has to be together. So yeah. accountability as a process involves truth telling and apology, actionable items and like community involvement. Right. So that brings us to cancel culture. Yeah. Um, so that's a huge term that refers to a lot of different things depending on who you ask. And historically, and you can interrupt me because I'm about to word vomit at you. Feel <laughs> free to interrupt. But um, cancel culture, as I've seen in the past couple of months, like you said, it's coming across social media everywhere. It refers to a number of different things, whether that's accountability, call-out culture, which is a very specific thing, um, boycotting, which has a huge long history and public shaming, which is as old as humanity itself as a way of changing behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at call-out culture, which as an idea and term kind of came about in Tumblr and queer communities in the like mid to late 2000s, um, as a way to call out like, you know, your fave is problematic. People do problematic things all the time. For a lot of underserved communities or marginalized communities, the steps for achieving justice are not there. Justice is not designed to serve those communities, so it's not achievable through our normal means, right? Mm -hmm. Publicly calling out to those in your community is nuanced. So there's a lot of layers to it. <laughs> yeah. 
And what I always come back to is you have to look at the power dynamic. Someone mm. calling out someone else who has more power than they will or potentially ever will is not canceling someone because to cancel, like by definition, to cancel something is to negate or nullify that power. Mm-hmm. By definition, Merriam-Webster. So you have to understand like the power dynamic there. So call-out culture is a way to find power in numbers, find power in your voice, especially now that there's social media and internet everywhere in a system where you might not be provided that anyway. It can be quickly become toxic when the person doing the calling out is using it to gain social capital or leverage for themselves, not for bettering the community or calling out a harm that it has done, but to better themselves. It can also become harmful when the person calling out has far more power than the other person. Because at that point, if you already have power, like you can easily do a call in, which is rather than public, you like call that person in. If you know them, if you're a part of the community and say, hey, I see this going on. I have these resources or this capacity to like guide through it. The point of accountability is that we do this together. It's not what our whole system of justice is based in, which is individualized punishment. Right. Um, It can't be super polarized. Like, I I feel like a lot of times with cancel culture is that it's very polarizing and that there's always, and I've talked about this with my friends before, there's always, it's almost like there's a black and white, right? It's always like, you're right, you're wrong, or we're right and you're wrong and you need to like not have a platform anymore and you need to Mm -hmm. be wiped off the face of the planet. Whereas like, you know, um, one, one of my favorite people to follow is Amanda Seals, but she she has a podcast episode where she talks about redemption culture versus cancel culture. And I, I think that's a really important thing, like way to look at it. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to call this person out or if you're going to call this person in whatever way, like you do it, um, are you going to give them room to redeem themselves? You know what I mean? Because that, that's what we want at the end of the day, right? We don't want all these people who are doing harm to feel so polarized that there isn't room for them to grow or to change. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, it's very nuanced, right? Um, and going back to centering the survivors or centering the victims, it's like, if, and this is where it can get nuanced, right? Like I, I, I think that part of social justice and social reform is using your imagination. And this is something that I've thought about a lot. And it's like, okay, well, if someone is the victim or someone is the survivor, I feel like it should be up to them to decide. Like if, even if that means like, I want to see this person deplatformed, like I, I can say from my own personal experience with um, my abuser, there was a t- point in time where I was like, I don't want this person to have a platform. I don't want them to have a career in this industry. You know what I mean? So it, it does, it's layered and, you know, we're complicated human beings. Oh, but sure. I, I think I think overall, it shouldn't be so polarizing. And I think overall with cancel culture, especially what with what we're seeing on social media is that it's so silly people are digging up people's histories from like 10 plus years ago and trying to cancel them for some shit they said when they were like 
13, 14, 15, even like even into their early 20s. It's like you don't think people have grown and changed. Like if I still had my Facebook, my original Facebook and like which I don't because I, I had to delete it because um, I'm a recovering hippie and there were a lot of people on there saying some weird stuff. So <laughs> but if people went into my old Facebook, like even like even I wouldn't, I'd be like, this is so cringy. Oh my God, look at how I've grown. But people, you know, and I think we can all say that. I think all of us can can say the same thing. Like we've all caused harm. We've all been bullies at some point or another. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I think, I think going back to like having it not be so polarizing, right? Like, yeah. and I think an important part of what you're saying when we've caused harm and have been faced with it, initially we're very defensive, right? Um, like, we don't want to think of ourselves that way. It causes mental dissonance of everyone pretty much thinks of themselves as a good person. And when you cause harm, it's immediately like a bodily mental reaction of like, no, right. I didn't. I'm just a person that doesn't fit in with who I am, which is why understanding racism can be so hard for some people because they see it as it's like active harming some someone rather than understanding it as an entire system that's, designed to benefit one group of people, white people, and disadvantage right. everyone else. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, that's, so, that's definitely a really important point. And um, part of it, we have to believe that no human being is disposable. And I, like you said, this involves a lot of imagination, because when you think about truly heinous crimes, it's really hard to process that. And that gets me to another point, that it is not everyone's responsibility to help a harm do or heal. It's not. It is not. Right every black person's responsibility to help white people learn about racism. Right, right. It's our own. It's not a survivor's responsibility to help their abuser heal. I will say it's the people who have actively supported that abuser who have been a part of his community or her community totally. or community who totally. need to do that. Yeah, I think, and I think that's where it really fails. I think it, I think communities often fail. And I think communities are often our friends, our family. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes people's friends and families just turn a blind eye. And sometimes people's friends and families in their community um, either don't want to talk about it, or they're scared to talk about it. And it's like, okay, well, if you're scared to bring it up with that person, and if you're afraid to talk to that person about A, B, or C, then how is that a safe relationship, right? And if you wanted to make it a safe relationship, then you would talk about it. And I, I think that's often where it does fail, sadly enough. Like I had, I had a situation over the summer where I, I called out someone who did harm. I, you know, I met, I DM'd them at first and I was like, yo, this isn't okay. Cause you know, they posted something that was really triggering to me. And instead of like taking accountability and apologizing, their response was like, not the response that I needed. You know what I mean? Going back to centering the needs of a survivor, um, which then led me to call out that person. And I ended up, you know, getting text messages from he that that person was in a text message conversation with one another one of my friends and they screenshotted the text message to me. And this person said, I don't agree with 
everything that my friends do, but they're still my friends. That's really hard to hear. Because that yeah. also makes you feel like, okay, so is my friendship not as valuable to you? Is my safety not as valuable to you? Oh, we we were never really friends. We we used to be coworkers, but you know, like it, there's still that dynamic there of like camaraderie that we've had in the past, and like sure. saying hi at industry events, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's like, you know, it it going back to like how, okay. So you don't want to hold your community responsible. You don't want to hold your friends responsible. Like, why are you friends with these people? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's so silly. It's so silly. I like, think you touched on something really important, though, about you tried to call this person in privately and that didn't work, so you called them out publicly. Yeah. Um, so uh, power to the people. It's a phrase that dates back to the civil rights movement. If y'all have seen Judas and the Black Messiah, that was like a central point of Fred Hampton's whole uh, ideology, power to the people. So using people in your community within your like social sphere to find power when you haven't had, when you don't have access to it and the tools that you had at your disposal alone were not enough, that is powerful. And that is a very important resistance tactic for many underserved and marginalized communities. Boycott has been around for a very long time and a lot of the rhetoric against cancel culture right now, especially by those with power, are because a lot of cancel culture centers on like actually boy- boycotting. It is now a trend to be woke and like ethical about how you spend your money. Which honestly is so funny to me because yes, it's a trend, but that's also capitalism with the free market at work. If people are choosing not to spend their money at an establishment run by an abuser, that's you chose this. Like that's the market at work. People right. are now valuing something else more than the food you put out or the drinks you put out or whatever you're providing. So yeah. the other important part of that is that as a term, uh, cancel culture comes from the Black community, from Black Twitter, from the movie New Jack City, from Love and Hip Hop New York. Um, and boycotts, we know, are very much historically relevant and important to uh, the civil rights movement. So understanding that those things very much disrupt profit and profit and capital mean power. That's why we've seen so much propaganda against cancel culture from people in power because it's it's a very well-oiled propaganda machine that decides to use these terms that give people power as a dog whistle because they're uncomfortable with these marginalized other people now having access to a platform and a voice and having the audacity to direct that kind of power towards, you know, white men, people who already have power. Mm-hmm. Um, the caucasity. Yeah. Another yeah. another word from Amanda Seals. <laughs> yeah. For it. So, like I said, it's very nuanced. The term it as it's weaponized today is very much based in what I think is like an anti, in a racist rhetoric. Um because of where the term comes from and like the aspects of cancel culture that we see demonized, whether that's boycotts or public shaming, all that culture coming from marginalized communities. Um, that's really important to understand. And like I said, it can quickly become toxic if we're not paying attention to the power dynamic of who is saying what against whom. It can very mm-hmm. quickly become toxic or bullying if we are not as a community holding those, doing the calling out accountable. And so accountability takes cancel culture, the idea of truth-telling and public movement to affect behavior or change to the next step. It's not, accountability is not just about truth-telling or forcing apologies or anything like that. 
It's about how do we move forward from this? How do we transform? How do we make it so that this doesn't happen again? And that's about getting to the root causes of these issues. And those are usually, usually structural things. It's how the entire restaurant business model is set up. Like the whole model is predicated on exploitation. So it's not going to be a model that gives voices to those who have experienced abuse. Right. And that's where imagination comes. How do we have a restaurant industry and a white supremacist capitalist culture that can actually create equitable spaces to work in? Right. Let's get into the first segment. Uh, Guilty pleasure drink. Ooh. What's your guilty pleasure drink? A really good daiquiri with Jamaican rum that's heavy on the rum and light on the sugar. Heavy on the rum, light on the sugar. Okay. Specifically, I'll just drink uh, Smith & Cross, which is like maybe strength, neat, or with one ice cream. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You like the funkiness of Jamaican rums? I do. Nice. Yeah, usually I'll do like a split base with my daiquiris between, I used to bartend. So when I, when I make a daiquiri, it's usually a split base between like a Jamaican rum, usually Smith and Cross and a lighter rum. That makes sense. So you're, you're getting some of that funkiness, but not as much. Cause sometimes like the funkiness of Jamaican rum can be a bit polarizing for people if they're not ready for it, you know? Oh, absolutely. I just love it. I guess like my family's from the South, so we always had bourbon in our house. And then like, I, I'm also currently an out of work bartender, but I got exposed to Jamaican rum and was like, this actually tastes like something different. A lot of um, more mass produced rums, aged rums are Asian bourbon barrels. So it has that similar flavor profile because that's what appeals to American customers. But yeah. I really like Jamaican rum because it has that pot distillation, so you can actually taste the terroir and spirit. Yeah, yeah, you you, yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me miss uh, spirit education from when I was a bartender. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, I remember the days when I used to go to a spirit class like at least twice a month. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten about it for most of the pandemic. Like I got to the point of being so lazy that I would just drink spirits neat. And it's not even ones that have to be cold. It's like rum or mezcal. You don't even have to do any work for it. But um, I feel you. I do miss it. My partner and I on the side as like a side hustle sell plants. And we did like a donation to an auction to do like a plant-based cocktail class where I did infusions with produce and these kinds of things. And it was only 30 minutes long technically but it lasted like an hour and 20 because I just kept talking because I missed it it's like that kind of information and knowledge sharing and growth from it yeah it's something to grieve that we don't have right now I know I I mean I would grieve the industry like as soon as the pandemic hit I was like I don't think I'm ever like I I mean I just launched my own business I don't think I'm ever going back but part of me is like Maybe in the summer when more people are vaccinated, I'll get a job and I'll only work for like a day, a week. And that's mm-hmm. that's probably like as much as I can handle. But yeah, there's so many aspects of it that I miss and I love, but there's so, if I were to write down a list, which I mean, I have it in my head, but I don't physically have it written down of pros versus cons in the industry. It's like the cons outnumber the pros by a lot yeah. <laughs> a lot and you know i've been doing a lot of healing self-healing and spiritual healing and you know 
mental healing, all that jazz, which I think a lot of people have been kind of forced to do in the face of a pan panorama. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, man, I, I came to the conclusion. It's like, you know, sometimes we're drawn to toxic people in toxic jobs and toxic behavior. And it's a hard thing to admit. And I'm like, I've been drawn to the industry because it's familiar. You know what I mean? And that shit made me bawl my eyes out one day. I'm like, fucking damn it. <laughs> there was a really good Instagram live video posted by Healthy Poor a couple days ago, two days ago, that talked about, it was like addressing what sense of urgency and perfectionism actually means in the context of the industry. Those two things being aspects of white supremacy and yeah. addressing those actually look like in the industry sense of urgency isn't like being efficient necessarily it's being so rushed and urgent that you're not taking care of yourself you're not drinking water throughout your shift you're not taking right you needed to take for three hours because the yeah the pressure is above you and before you with customers are so urgent you're in like a fight or flight mode and that yeah. you're just like rushing it's literally a bodily response urgency like even the word urgent um healthy port was saying it, it elicits like a bodily response to you, the word urgent like urgent care yeah. yes 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 i saw a meme a few weeks ago that talked about um email professionalism and how that like that plus professionalism in the workspace is a byproduct and based in white supremacy. And it's like, that is only for white people. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I, I don't remember exactly what it said. I think I might have a screenshot, but uh, yeah, it relates exactly to what Healthy Poor was saying, as you were saying, like. Yeah, and what you just said, you said it felt familiar, the, the toxicity in the industry. What Healthy Poor said that like made me really be like, oh my God, I need to take a minute. Was that like, even if something is familiar and comfortable, it doesn't mean it's right or okay. Right. right. And I think so many folks in the industry who are neurodivergent or who come from mixed backgrounds, uh, our whole industry is so incredibly diverse that finding it's almost like commiseration it's a bond like i think for many of us we stay in the industry because the people we find there make it palatable at least they make that's, it endurable and that's like another thing that i was thinking when i was like going through the healing processes earlier in the pandemic was like oh and I, I've been meaning to make a tiktok about this because <laughs> you know laughter is medicine and making you know, trauma and hurt into comedy is is a form of healing for me and a lot of other people. But I came to the realization that like, holy shit, most of my friends are from the industry. Holy shit, we're all just friends because of trauma bonding. Mm hmm. So strong. And that, that's not like the only reason we're friends. Obviously, like I have deeper connections with them than that. But that's like, if you really think about it, like that's, you know, we go out for drinks after a really, really hard shift at work. It's like, why do you think, like, we're, that is literally trauma bonding. And I think it's something important to note with trauma bonding in our industry. It almost, like, the industry almost becomes an identity. It's like the band-aid that you could put on to all your trauma that you haven't dealt with because you don't have the space or the time. Like, your work does not allow you the space or time to process. It's this band-aid that we put you on. Just go, 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 go. 
know that I can work a 17 hour shift without taking a break or sitting down. Like it's, it's like a badge of honor rather than realizing that even if you can do that, you shouldn't be doing that. It's not good no. for you ultimately. And if we're talking about efficiency, a truly efficient person is able to take care of their actual needs and like monitor the, and, and regulate their emotions while they're working and have strong boundaries so that when they get off work, they don't have to go slam drinks at the bar. They don't have to go and like complain to get all their feelings out to their friend who's also processing what they just went through. Yeah, right. Um, going back to like the urgency and the trauma based off of that, I think overall, when it comes to the industry, because it is built off of slavery and, you know, Black people literally made the hospitality industry as we know it in America. And then, you know, it, it's a, it has evolved, but it still has those deep roots in serving white supremacists, literally, mm-hmm. in serving, you know, uh, people who enslave others, in serving just like rich, snooty, white assholes, to be frank about it. And, you know, then it's invol- evolved into, you know, we just serve everyone. And we're still acting on urgency and bending over backwards for people who oftentimes don't even treat any of us with respect. You know what I mean? And I I think that's just another important thing to know and to talk about is that like, if you look at the industry and how it's evolved since the beginning of the industry in America, you can see where it came from. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's almost like generational trauma in the industry. Oh, for sure. And it's as time has evolved and it's fallen out of style to be like openly racist or openly exploitative, there are now different terms and different ways it looks. In the same way, if either of you have, or anyone has read like the new Jim Crow, it, it talks about how certain systems of control and oppression have just evolved to continue to maintain their invisibility to those in, to those who like carry the privilege. So like whiteness, white supremacy is insidious. And as white people who don't experience as often the negative effects, we still do, but not as often and not to the same degree. You have to learn to see it. It's like trying to see water. You have to learn to see it, but once you do, you can't unsee it. You can't, it's always gonna be. And so I think a big part of this whole current movement within the restaurant and hospitality industry is education. And not just for us, for patrons, like, yeah, so much of the problems that plague us right now are because as an industry, we are well aware, I think at least, of the amount of substance abuse that we are faced with, the amount of abuse, the amount of uh, sexual abuse and misconduct, all of these things. We're well aware. We're well aware that we have unhealthy scheduling and instability, all of these things. But the patrons don't know that. And like one bad Yelp review against a head chef or an owner who has gotten so many accolades from like the James Beard Awards or Michelin, that does nothing. Yeah. It does. I think that right. goes back to my point. Cancel culture, to cancel them, something means to negate or nullify the power. So if you think about all the people who have been canceled or called to be canceled, like think about J.K. Rowling for transphobia. She's gotten more press and more money from all of this. She's not canceled. So if we're thinking about canceling as the term cancel means, I would say an entire generation of black and brown men and women trapped by the carceral system, that's canceling. 
like if we want to talk about cancel culture, let's look at cancel culture on a brighter, broader scale of what the state institutions and systems of power do to whole groups of people, not one abusive white guy at CNN or like a couple of right. abusive refs that we all knew were doing that. Everyone in the industry knew, it was now the public knows. And being right. socially aware and ethical is now a form of currency. Yeah, it is a form of currency. It really is. You really nailed it. I was talking about this like on my Instagram a, a little while ago, but um, I got into a conversation with this woman who was trying to call out or cancel this uh, like smoothie coffee shop in Wicker Park for like biting off of another name of like the same place that lives in like the north side right and the one in Wicker Park is black owned and I was like yo leave them alone they're like black owned like what the fuck are you doing I didn't say I, I didn't say that but I, I basically said it without saying that you know what I mean Mm -hmm. She was a white woman, so she got all defensive because that's what white women love to do um, and ended up blocking me. So I ended up talking about it and I was like, you know, a white owned restaurant will not do as much for the community as a black owned restaurant will, period. You know what I mean? And they'll get way more acclaim for what they do. Exactly. And it, it had me thinking about something. And th this white woman was, you know, posting a lot about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And it got me thinking how white people and white allies, I don't like using the word ally, but that's what a lot of white people like to call themselves, use the Black Lives Matter movement and use their participation in it as almost like a mask to cover up their own internalized racism or their own internalized racial bias instead of actually doing the inner work. Cause that's a lot of deep inner work. I can say that for myself is unlearning and unraveling the, you know, years of, I grew up in the suburbs if you can imagine, you know what I mean? <laughs> Me too. Right. So it's like, you know, from, from the time we were born, unfortunately, as white people, we are born into these systems and we're not taught anything else until, like you said, we learn to see the water. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I, I think that's a mean issue. And I, I've heard a lot of other people uh, that I look up to um, talk about this and how I think Mackenzie Mack was one of them. I, I went on a, a webinar with her hosting and Ashton Berry hosting over, I want to say it was like late summer. And she's like, it just makes me cringy seeing all these white people like going to these Black Lives Matter protests. It's like, what work are you actually doing? Because it, it's not just going to protests. It's not just participating in trying to unionize places. It's not, you know what I mean? It, it's, you have to do, honestly, you have to do the interpersonal work before you even like try to give yourself a platform mm -hmm. of and speaking about it. I think kind of what we were talking about earlier about who has the responsibility to guide 
um, healing and accountability. And I think in this instance, what you're talking about is more so like performance to maintain social capital, social standing, whatever currency exactly. comes from that, rather than it is a lot of inner work. And it's a lot of like interpersonal work. It's a lot of talking to your parents or your racist aunt Kathy. And like, it's going to be hard. And you're probably going to cry because it's really hard for anyone to process their love and familial ties with the real fact that people can be very racist and harmful too. It's that kind of dissonance. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're talking about earlier with your friends who were unwilling to address it, we do by and large as people define ourselves by who we're in relation to. And if one of our best friends, one of our good friends is racist because in the United States being racist is like one of the worst things you could be, it's really hard to see yourself as having power in that situation to affect change. And so I think a lot of folks don't do what you're talking about, the inner work of not just like, I'm showing up to these protests and holding space that was already created by someone else for something else or someone else, but looking at what you have in your own life and your own capacity to change. And it is right. a lot of work. It's honestly a lot of going to therapy and using those same tools that might help you address your own problems to like see how your thought processes work. See like how your somatic processes work. Do you have like your heart slightly start to race if you're walking on the same side of the street as a black person? Like, even if you don't actually acknowledge it in your mind, you still might have a bodily reaction. It's a lot of learning to see how you yourself thinks, which is hard. It is so hard. It's, yeah. a lifetime, it's a lifetime journey. It really is. And that's also about accountability. It's always going to be a process. There's not like a single destination. Some of you may know that self-care is very important to me. You also probably know this about me, but sex positivity is the forefront in a lot of the things that I do. That being said, I would really like to introduce you to a brand that I care very deeply about, Unbound Babes. They started as a labor of love in tiny New York apartments and have grown to becoming a leader in improving how people explore and enjoy pleasure. Additionally, and almost importantly, they're a woman-ran and owned business. They have a team of about six people and they all are women identifying. That's what we want to see. We love women-owned businesses. Unbound Babes has a diverse catalog, which I think is really important because you want to diversify what you have in your self-care toolkit, yeah? From vibrators to nipple clamps to lubricant to condoms, you can really get it all in Unbound Babes. Use code Life of LEG for 10% off your order. I forgot the point you made, but I wanted to draw it back to perfectionism. Yeah. Um, and something that I've been thinking about for a little while in terms of <laughs> if perfectionism and the idea of what is perfect has grown in a white supremacist society, to be perfect, you have to be white. You have to be white. And so we hear about that in terms of like the white beauty ideal. Um, and a, you can easily see that in terms of who holds leadership and managerial positions within the restaurant industry, even though we know the backbone of the industry is black, brown, and femme. Mm -hmm. um, we can see that in who holds the money-making positions in fancy restaurants in front of house sommeliers, servers, bartenders, who's taking that money. But there's yeah. a, um, if y'all ever have seen Scandal, um, the quote by Olivia Pope's dad, Eli Pope, black people have to work twice as hard to get half as much. It's that mm -hmm. same idea. Perfectionism will never be achievable. And I think in the restaurant industry, we do have an idea that perfect is achievable. And that's why you see so much abuse in the back of house. I've heard so many chefs be like, do you want to put it up fast or do you want to put it up right? And the chef says, or the, the line cook says, right. And the chef says, no, it should be fast and right. And it's like, okay, there's like literally no winning. There's no winning. Right. I, it's like white, I, I saw 
another meme about this and it's like, or maybe it was a TikTok, one of the two, but it's a, it was something along the lines of like white supremacy, white supremacist illusion has created this bar that is unachievable, it, including for white people. Like it's mm-hmm. like, it, it's, and they went on to say it's boring. Like, like what, what is the point of having these rules and these regulations and all of this stuff in place when one, it isn't even achievable and two, like shit's boring. Like if you look at, you know, the, the whole fucking stupid scandal with the Royal family, it's like, they're the ones that fucking invented this shit basically. And like, you know, I remember when, um, Megan and Harry first got married and I, I was reading an article or maybe it was a, a news clip that was discussing how she's going to dress now. Cause it's like, she needs to, like, they were saying like, Oh, Royal family can't dress the way that she dressed as an actress in California. And it's like, they're like, she needs to be, you know, like more clothed basically. They, they said it in another like verbiage, but I was just like, why, why do you like, you know, and it's like, it's the, the standards are silly. And it's harmful. Like what you're saying, it it hurts white people too. Patriarchy is very much a part of white supremacy. It's very harmful. And I, I didn't watch the Oprah interview with um, Megan and Harry, but I read about it. And uh, like one of the bigger points is that she was feeling suicidal. She was not good mentally and she tried to talk to people about it. And a big part of white supremacist culture is to avoid conflict. Um, And so I think that's a big part of it too, understanding that white supremacy hurts everyone in very big and harmful ways. And we have to like learn to recognize that not just for like people of color, but for everyone, it's very starched, hard boundaries that are not good for anyone. Yeah, I I watched the interview uh, last week. I would say it's definitely worth the watch. Nothing is very surprising because the royal family basically invented the shit. They've colonized more than a hundred countries. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, she she was basically saying like, I tried to go to someone and they said that if I go get help, it will hurt the image of the family. And that is exactly what was happening with, with Diana, with Harry's mom. Like she was having mental health issues too. Like she had bulimia and she tried to, you know, go to the, how do they phrase it? The firm. Um, and they wouldn't let her go get help. Another thing that was really surprising was that, and I didn't even know this, but Megan was like, once I got married, like, my ID and my keys were taken away. Like, I don't, I didn't have that freedom to just go. That's scary. Cause you're like in it, like you're in the the family and it's like, you know, you have their security. You have like, like you don't drive yourself obviously cause you need security to drive you. That's like a symptom of a, like a very clear symptom of an abusive relationship. You don't have power over movement or yeah. Yeah. And it's, I read all, obviously like all of the articles about it, and then I saw one article obviously posted on Fox News about the royal response saying that they're not a racist family, and I just threw my head back and laughed. And it's like, are you like, fucking kidding? The, the world would be a much better place if white people just admitted that they all have racial bias. 
Right. And that's such an important thing because a lot of the pushback and like defensiveness that we've seen about accountability right now is because people lack the understanding, education, whatever you want to call it, of seeing the structures around them, of seeing that racism isn't just that I, I actively did something to harm you, but rather I benefit from all of these systems. They are not my personal fault, but I still benefit from them. So they're my responsibility to fix. Right. And I right. think that's like one of the biggest issues right now, especially with those in power, whether that's in the restaurant hospitality industry or not, is like that defensiveness is an aspect of white supremacy. But we as a community, for those who have the capacity, need to learn how to like talk about these things so that we can engage in healing. And healing, yeah. truth is necessary for healing. So I would say right now, as a society in the U.S., we can never actually heal from the traumas of slavery because we haven't actually addressed the truth of it. Like, right. Healing on that front is not going to be available to Black people as a whole for a while until we can address the truth of it. So healing is also a privilege. Right. But within our community, if we're able to at least progress towards that, even if it's a small step or like three steps back and five forward, that's still something. Like we have to see this as a process and a journey. And that, yes, we're all at different points in that journey, but we're in it together. And this can't be like we shame someone so hard that they never come back to talk to us again. Right. We exactly. have to be able to keep the door open. And like I said, that doesn't mean everyone, but it doesn't mean that those who have the capacity and the privilege to be able to do so should. Yeah. Let's get into the next segment. Uh, death meal. So what if you knew you were going to croak tomorrow? What would be your last meal? <laughs> Ooh, that's such a good question. I love cheeseburgers, so that would definitely be involved. But I also love tamales, so it would probably also involve that. Um, and soft serve of some sort. So, like good soft serve ice cream, not the kind that comes Ooh. from like powder, but like good real soft serve ice cream. Yeah. Do you have a favorite place for cheeseburgers? Ooh, it kind of, I love a good smash burger over like the thick pub burgers you can get. I do love Fats' Last Stand. Um, I do too. I love I actually, this place. It's I so actually, good. I just went there, um, well, not just, but it, it seems like, because I never leave my house, but one of the last times I left my house was in December, uh, right? It was literally right before I got COVID too. I think I like had COVID going to Fatso's, honestly, but I, it was in December and that was the first time I had had Fatso's in so long. I went to their newer location. Do you know oh, about their newer one? In like Lincoln Park? Yeah, it's like Clybourne mm -hmm. and Cortland. It's like where that weird intersection of like Clybourne, Cortland, and I don't know what that other Elton. street is. Yeah, it's like a Elston. bunch of confusing roads where you can't make a left turn. Yeah. It's, it, I, I ride my bike all the time. I also used to work in Lincoln Park for a little bit. That was like one of my most previous jobs was in LP. And yeah, that intersection is a little dangerous for sure. <laughs> but man, yeah, Fatso's is, Fatso's is good. Yeah. I also like Red Hot Ranch, which they just recently opened their new location. On yeah. Ranch, and, um, like Armitage in Milwaukee. I live like right there. Oh really? I, yeah. I haven't I haven't been to the new one yet. I've walked past it so many times, but every time I've walked past it, I'm like, I, I'm not craving it. I'm not craving a cheese because it's 
cheeseburgers are so heavy you know what i mean like you really mm -hmm. have to be in the mood for a cheeseburger to get a cheeseburger it's usually when i'm hungover that i want one <laughs> That's like honestly uh, thank you for saying that because cheeseburgers are my hangover cure same it's like that in a Topo Chico and maybe a Mexican Coke, which thank you, by the way, for sending that. <laughs> I literally, literally was going to say cheeseburger and Mexican Coke. That's like yep. my hangover cure. So yeah. good. <laughs> Have you been, there's this Mexican restaurant on, not too far from me. It's on California. Um, it's a little bit north of Milwaukee, but it's called Don Shema. No, I haven't been there uh they they have a really good cheeseburger and then if you get it they have like these super duper greasy waffle fries oh, the best type of fry the rarest right i i used to work at heavy feather and when uh their drinking culture there no offense was like pretty fun if you want to put it that way and you know, I would. It was a two a.m., three a.m. on Saturdays. So sometimes on Saturdays, I wouldn't get home till almost five in the morning. Oh. That shit sucked. And sometimes I would get to work hungover. And the good thing about working there is that, like, we were able to leave and get food whenever we wanted because we didn't have a restaurant, like, like a kitchen. So they're like, "Yeah, go get food before it gets busy." And there were uh, multiple times where I'm like, I'm going to go get a cheeseburger from Don Chema and I'm going to be like a brand new person. <laughs> like thin griddle burgers with like a crispy edge. Okay. I will definitely have to check that out. I also specifically love little diners that like holes in the wall where you can watch them cook your food. Yeah. Um, Belmont Snack Shop for all the problems it had. I did love that place. I also, my first service mm -hmm. industry job was cocktail server at the Owl. So in terms of late nights, I feel you. <laughs> and the Belmont Snack Shop, yeah. <laughs> the Belmont Snack Shop was definitely one of those places I would go to all the time to get food after work. For all of our listeners that doesn't know what the Owl is, it is a raunchy 4 a.m. bar in Logan Square. And um, you only go there to get in trouble, really. <laughs> yeah. And that's all, uh, that usually people, when I tell them I was working there or worked there, they're like, oh, I've been there. I just don't really remember being there. And I was like, right, that's right for a place where there have been like, <laughs> urinals ripped off the wall on a Wednesday at 9 p.m. Sounds about right. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, honestly, like... You don't you don't go to 4 a.m. bars to remember your time of going mm -hmm. to a 4 a.m. bar. My personal like Yeah. Okay. I I don't I personally just didn't like the owl at for whatever reason that was, but my 4 a.m. bar of choice was remedy. And mm. I would own like if I if I told you I was going to remedy, I was probably too wasted to even <laughs> Go to remedy. <laughs> I was preferred Estelle because one, they had food, and two, it's just like the right amount of darkness where you can be a little bit slumped over in a booth or something, and no one's gonna notice. Also, uh, one of their when I man, this was like six years ago when I was going there regularly. They had a guy who wasn't a door guy, but frequently sat by the door because he was a taxi driver, <laughs> Jimmy. Okay. He, was like, he wasn't a door guy, but he frequently sat. By he was like a long time regular. He was sober. He smoked a lot of weed and was like happy to share. But okay. he would just always offer rides home to industry folks who were like 
their after hours or they're late working or they're off work and got drunk at, you know, like sister establishment, just like rides for free, um, which mm-hmm. is really sweet. But yeah. man, 4 a.m. life is something else. Never, never again. That yeah. was my New Year's resolution last year was like, I'm not going to 4 a.m. bars anymore unless I'm in another country or in New Orleans because it's New Orleans. Yeah. And I, I caught myself one time at the owl, actually. Uh, it was like probably January. It had to have been January or yeah, it was January or February. And I caught myself at the owl. I was like, I told myself that I would not be doing this anymore. And I, I like left immediately. I was like, I gotta go. I, I, I gotta like, go. We're following your own boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> you were like, I gotta get out of here. Um, so when is cancel culture needed in your opinion? Mm. When is it when is it appropriate to use? So I guess to specify, I'm going to talk about cancel culture as like boycotting and callouts that do not engage in like an uneven power dynamic. Not someone with more power. Like you're talking about that white woman call, calling out a black owned restaurant for their name. The power dynamic there is not the right one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think when it's necessary, and I wish I had the quotes pulled up, but when there are no other avenues towards justice or even achieving truth-telling in a way that will be impactful on your community because you know this harm harm isn't just against an individual. It's against your whole community. It serves to devalue and harm and um, de-strengthen the ties that we have to one another. I think cancel culture in terms of call-outs and boycotts and public shaming can be very, very important. Honestly, with most resistance tactics, like... It is very much about power dynamic, but if you think about how important boycotts are in terms of changing the trajectory of power, it's just crucial because people don't listen to emotional-based pleas. People listen to where money goes. And this is something um, I've spent a little bit of time in South America, and like one of the biggest forms of protest, especially in more rural areas, in Argentina where I was, is cutting off um, highways which highways are important methods of accessing other centers of capital in a country. So if you come off products moving, products coming in, even like money moving, it's, it grinds the whole economy or that small system to a halt. So I think cancel culture is not just when is it important or when can it be used. We need to understand that it's always useful when our current justice system, our current power dynamic is so inequitable. It's powerful. Like people coming mm-hmm. together with a, like a voice, talking about something together, calling something out is necessary when there are no other tools of justice to serve marginalized and underserved communities. Totally. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any specific like people or instances. Um, I, I think in my personal opinion, cancel culture is appropriate to be used when the the person who should be canceled if you will is still benefiting off of whatever they're doing or is in still or is still doing the harm based off of the power that they have sure so then my question to you then i agree wholeheartedly my question to you then say that person 
takes a step back from their platform or their restaurant, their bar, whatever it is that gives them power. It takes a step back for a couple months, a year, whatever, and then comes back to put out something new that hasn't done the work. They haven't put out apologies. They haven't engaged with the community. They haven't done any sort of like mutual aid. Then what then? So I hear you, but I also think like understanding yeah. accountability is a process. And while people might feel that they have been entirely canceled when they feel pressured to close down their business or like take a pause, I want to be clear in that like cancel culture yeah. will be useful as long as that there are voices that will continue to be silenced in terms of the pursuit of justice. I totally and I to totally agree with that. Um, I'm trying to think, I think, you know, I think it comes down to deplatforming and I think deplatforming yourself is a gift. Um, like accountability is love, right? Yeah. And if you have been doing so much harm to the point where you were forced to deplatform yourself and you're not looking at it like it's a gift and you're not looking at that time that you have and that you were given to, you know, focus on other things and those other things should be focusing on working on yourself and working towards, you know, being a better person and working towards how to redeem yourself. Um, then one, that's just sad, but two, you, you know, you were, you were given the gift of time mm -hmm. and it, it's up to you to do what you will with that time. And hopefully people do positive things with that time. But if they don't and they come back into it, then you're just creating more harm again. And it's like this endless cycle, right? And, you know, like R. Kelly is a great example. Like he he needed to be deplatformed. He shouldn't be continuing to make money, continuing to buy mansions to literally house, not even house women, but, you know, hold them hostage in these mansions. You know what I mean? And... That's a good example. I think I think a perfect example is, okay, so the previous chef of this one restaurant who went to open another restaurant in the city and, you know, he, he I'm laughing nervously because that's just how I handle trauma. Um, he, he, you know, he had to de-platform a little bit because he abused his wife who was like the manager of the restaurant stepped back, went to rehab, is a narcissist. If you looked at his Instagram, he talked about all the healing he did. And in the one month he was in rehab, classic narcissism. And he was getting all the, this praise. And then he was posting DMs from other women saying like, oh, like, I can see that you're doing so much better. Da, da, da. Went to open another restaurant and he had a um, he did like a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Benefit dinner. And the money went to the same, uh, organization that helps women like survivors. And that organization was the same organization that his ex-wife went to. Woof. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean. People like that, in my opinion. But again, like, I'm not a survivor of either of these people. 
And in my opinion, I think it should be up to the survivors. Right. And that's what I was going to say. What did his wife want? I imagine exactly. she didn't want him to have, I mean, I'm not going to put words in her mouth, but as someone who's also a survivor, I can only guess that those things that he did are not what she wanted. Maybe they were, I don't know, but it does seem to fit with what you said about narcissism. It's about a show. And that I think accountability is always going to be about the community. It's not just about an individual healing themselves. Like it's, you have to repair the harm that was done externally, not just the bad things that exist inside. Like you have to do the external work. And it's also very much about rebuilding trust. Like everyone, I also can't remember the name, but you know, good riddance. Um, but everyone has heard this story. It was very public. And he has to rebuild trust. And that is done through reparative actions, not just apologies. I went to therapy for a month and I donated. Like those are passive yeah. kind of like half-assed actions. I, I'm not discrediting that money is necessary for that foundation to continue to exist, but those are half-assed actions. That's putting right. money where you need to actively solve the problem. Yeah. And it's a lot of centering yourself instead of centering the needs of those you hurt. Yeah. And, you know, I think. I will say in this particular conversation, I am going to be a little bit biased because my ex boss kind of did a similar thing. Lots of allegations of abuse and racism and all of these things. And he went quiet for a couple months and like closed down his business only to reopen a new one in the same location, but with his name not attached. There's no way to find his name attached to this business, even though everyone knows it's him. His staff did a lot of work for him and nothing came from it. We never got apologies, nothing. Um, and then to find yeah. out through word of mouth that he's reopened a new concept in the same place. It's it's so deeply, I don't even have a word for it. For it. It's like, it's disgusting. It's like, yeah, it's like there's still so much work to do and like we're trying to make this better and we gave you all the tools we had and you're still not doing shit with it. It makes you angry and it makes you want to actively punish people even though like intrinsically I know punishment doesn't always lead to anything good. It's right. And so I think when we talk about accountability, it's also important to remember that it's not just like this lofty tangible process. It's a lot of internal processes to understand our own capacities and how we navigate that. The audacity of white men. Oh, yeah. I was thinking this morning, this is just a random thought, but I, I, I get a lot of random thoughts in the bathroom. I don't know what it is about bathrooms. But I was washing my face and I, I was thinking, like, if I, if that, like, I don't, you know, I see some women out there, uh, specifically white women, whose, like, best friends are cis white men. And I'm just like... Did you do an interview process before that, or 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 are you just there to mother him? You know Ooh. what I mean. Ooh. <laughs> that just hit me in like a lot of past relationships there. Um. Well, I'm I'm sorry for I should have put a trigger warning. I'm no, so sorry. You're fine. <laughs> but like, I mean, personally for me, I I mean I'm bisexual, but I primarily date men because I'm one of those bisexuals that primarily dates men. I don't know if you can relate or no friends mm -hmm. that can relate, but um, I like I put my foot down like a couple uh, 
three years ago after like my last relationship with a intimate relationship with a uh, cis white man. I'm like, I, I can't like, I like even just sitting in a restaurant trying to have a conversation with a cis white man. I'm just like, do you not like to have a conversation with women or do you just like to hear yourself talk? Like, the amount of dates that I've been on that are like, I ask so many questions and I don't get a single question asked back. Yes, or that. Yeah. That, but it's just men in general, though, too. Like, that's not just, like, white men's thing. Yeah. It's, like, all men. It's, like, am I leading this conversation? Or even if you're not leading, like, the questions, it's, like, they're just blabbing about something that you're not even interested in. It's, like, okay. But I think to tie it back to white supremacy, like, it's – obviously, white supremacy affords privileges to white people and disadvantages everyone else. But it's also harmful to white people. Like, can you imagine living in such a closed and rigid world to not think or know to go beyond what you know? Like, all of our schooling, all of the classics that we read in English lit are white men. Like, you're not getting the other perspective versus if you're a woman or a person of color or queer, you are forced to learn empathy because the stories you are getting are coming from a perspective that is not yours and will never be. Like, learning empathy is difficult and, and painful. It is necessary to be, I think, a good human being. And it's not something that is taught to cis white men. It's not something that is asked of them until they get older and find themselves in relationships with people asking for basic needs or boundaries and not being able to meet that. And that's harm. Right. That's harmful to them. It's harmful to everyone around them. And so when I talk about pointing out the systems that are around us, it's just as important, I would say obviously more so important for people who hold identities that have power to learn how to do so. And it's going to be so uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable and painful. Have you have a lot of bad realizations about yourself and your family and the people around you. But if you're committed to the idea that there's a better future, there's something better that we can work towards. That's, that's the biggest first step. Yeah. I'm pulling up a, a meme. Uh, I literally just saw this in my Uber earlier. But it talked about how, you know, people don't people don't think that like white supremacy, white supremacist delusion like affects everyone. It's not, you know, it even though it it definitely affects black people, indigenous people of color the most, because uh, there is that power dynamic. But like people don't realize that the delusion affects white people too. But um, it says. This is by Lindsay Lockett. Uh, I think she has a podcast. I just found this like earlier today, like I said, but it says I'm a white person of primarily older European ancestry. Many of my ancestors enacted colonialist harm by participating in settler colonialism. My ancestors lost their own cultural identity and lineages. They stole land identity and heritage from those they colonized. Because of my ancestors' participation in settler colonialism, I have lost the deep connection to my own roots, culture, land, spirits, traditions, and ancestry. And I was like, damn, that is, and it's like, okay, you know, it's like a run and joke, like white, like white people don't have culture, right? Like mm-hmm. we don't, we don't even know how to season our food. White people colonize like half the world for fucking spices and we don't even fucking use them. That's another run on joke. It's one of my favorite run on jokes. I personally am a white woman. I don't really cook. I survived off of staff meal for the last three years of my life. And because of the panorama that we're in, I finally started to cook. My spice cabinet 
is actually just like shelves. But my like shelves that I have hanging up are like the fullest they've ever been. I just started seasoning my food like two o'clock yesterday. And like, it's like, yeah, we don't have culture because we were so focused, like not we, but you know, our ancestors, unfortunately, were so focused on colonizing and stealing other people's cultures. And then we stole them and we don't even use them. Like, like it affects everyone, you know? Yeah. And there's so much specific like historical design behind that if you think about the like the idea of race and that there are different races is not it's not one science and two not something that is like long been with us it's maybe three four hundred years old and race was devised as a as an economic function because because so if you think about like i think about three years of sustainability of the actual physical environment and then you have society, which is people, and then economy exists within people. There's no mm-hmm. rabbit economy that I'm aware of, you know? So right. like if you think about capitalism as a function of white supremacy, race came about during colonial times in the US as a divider. Obviously there were native people here before, um, and those people weren't even considered people. That's why they were decimated, murdered, genocide. Um, and then you have a labor force colonial times that was primarily European indentured servants and black slaves from Africa. Mm-hmm. At that time, there were more indentured servants, but because of something called Bacon's Rebellion, in which like both poor white people who didn't own land or have any rights banded together with slaves to try and overthrow the ruling class, which didn't end up working, the ruling class decided to implement and really invest in slavery because they knew eventually European indentured, indentured servitude would dry up uh-huh. and slavery was a much cheaper option. And so like right. race, the idea of whiteness and the other comes from that. Right. Also invested in like the Protestant work ethic. So the idea that there is one type of whiteness that works, that there are these rigid boxes come from our history. It's not, yeah. it's something people made up to maintain power. It's not like these structures that are intangible that we can never change. There are things right. people made up to maintain their power because they were afraid. And it's also like racism and genetics. Like race is literally a thing that white people made up. And that's also why like colorism um, is a huge topic of discussion, especially when it comes to, you know, the royal family with Meghan Markle. That's like been all over social media and Twitter lately. And it's like, you know, people should recognize that your proximity to whiteness and if you're white hat like you're if you look like one of my favorite people to follow on tiktok her name is head of the hoochies i forget her name on twitter but she's been on twitter for a while but she has a tweet or no she had a tiktok that i reposted a while ago and she's like if you look white you're going to be treated like you're white mm-hmm. like period like end of discussion it doesn't matter like what your parents look like it doesn't matter like how you're brought up etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know, that's like another thing to like talk about probably on a different episode, but <laughs> let's get into the last segment. If you were president. Or a leader and had, you know, the powers that be not like any of us really want that. But what would you do? Like, what would be your like first three to five executive orders that you would put in place oh my god that's such a big question I know I Um, love it (laughs) 
Damn. Uh, I, I think I first commit to like countering climate change and all of the big steps that entails because none of us exist if our environment doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, secondarily, like to be honest, I kind of believe that no white person should be in that kind of position of power for at least like 10 years so we can recalibrate and rebuild systems. So maybe I right. just like force everyone, including myself, to resign uh, and kind of just allow every other person who doesn't have whiteness in their privilege toolbox to figure out a more equitable system. Because like, I, I think empathy is required for understanding equity, number one. And mm -hmm. it's, empathy is also a practice. It's not like just a noun or something like that. It's something you have to actively practice and cultivate. So I think giving white people, like you said, it, it can be a gift having time. Um, and that's actually something Ashton Beria has talked about. Like, there are offerings being made to you left and right. You just have to be ready to receive them, even if it's not something you necessarily want. So, like, giving right. the white community the time to, like, go through this long process, which really will be reckoning with hundreds and hundreds of years and everything that we know. Because it, it is the great unlearning. Like, you have to relearn. Gen it's generational trauma. Yeah. Like we like we as white people have generational trauma from our ancestors being enslavers, you know? Yeah. So yeah. But besides that No white people in office, I like that yeah. idea. Yeah. Besides Get out that, of here. Um I feel like I would uh, I don't know. This is so hard. Yeah, put on the spot a little bit. Um, I would definitely uh, disband, defund, cancel, whatever you want to call it, police and prisons. Um, that's part of my personal and professional theoretical framework as abolitionist. So, like, that would mm -hmm. be a step towards racial justice, mm -hmm. um, which is justice for everyone. Um, and besides that, I would probably uh, cancel Crocs as a thing people can buy and wear. Crocs, thank yeah. you. Oh my God, I was literally, that was literally my high thought of the last three days. I feel like people wear Crocs, like ironically, like to be funny. And it's like turned into, you know, like they have like the jewels and like, like you put this, like, like they're doing all these like collaborations with companies. Like, I feel like people just wear them to be funny. And at this point it's a run on joke. That isn't funny. It's not funny anymore. And I don't know if they're comfortable. There are plenty of comfortable shoes out there that don't look like that. I can't comfortable shoes look nice. Why isn't there like a nice looking industry comfortable non-slip shoe? I don't get it. Even dance goes. Dance goes are not comfortable for me. I like I my most comfortable shoe was wearing behind a bar are are ones. Hmm. Like Jordan ones. I hear that. I have really high arches in my feet, so most of my most comfortable work shoes have like a I don't want to say a heel, but it's like kind of like what dance goes have where it has like the high arch and sight wedge. I was wearing Sorrels prior to the pandemic. Um, which they have like slip resistant shoes that have a good tread on it, but wear off after six months, like most shoes do. Right. But those are super cute. <laughs> like they look like a nice boot, you know. Crocs are so ugly. Like, it is, like, I remember, like, probably six years ago, like, pe you know, people wear them as house shoes. Like, pe I thought people just wore them as house shoes. 
Like I thought they were like a kitchen thing turned into pe- like, you know, people working in the kitchen to people wearing them as house shoes. And then people started wearing them like out in public. And at, at that point it was mostly white men. And I've been making fun of white men for a very long time. And I would just make fun of white men. It's like, you have so much privilege that you feel the need that it's okay to walk outside of the house in sweatpants and Crocs. Are you kidding me? Like a lot of us don't get that privilege. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. My mom is and was a nurse growing up, so she had telecogs and all of those things. And I would just roast her as like an eight-year-old. My mom was wearing like patent leather red clogs with like bejeweled "Love Your Nurse" or something on it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I also grew up in the suburbs, if you couldn't tell. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, from there, I just never wanted – I never got into the clog life. I was always yeah. about boots or, like, lace-ups. When I was working I, at the Apple, I actually got a pair of steel-toed boots because of the amount of split toenails I got from people stepping on my feet. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> Ugh. What uh, does the future of hospitality look like to you? Oh, I love this question. So many things. It looks sustainable and equitable and joyful and healthy and oriented towards the future, um, oriented towards healing and collective growth. Tangibly, it looks like healthcare. And um, for me in this city specifically, I would love to see a worker-led and run ethics board for the restaurant industry because the amount of times I tried to talk to the Department of Labor and NLRB, National Labor Review Board, about issues at my workplace, I don't even get a response. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see a worker-led ethics board to have instances, to have like complaints of abuse or misconduct come before the city in a way that it can be judged fairly and not by business interests or prioritizing profit. That's me right. personally. Um, yeah, I think it, it, our future should be trauma free. We shouldn't be bonded to one another by trauma, but rather by valuation in our community and each other. And the fact that when we're all empowered, we're all moving in the right direction. Like, um, there's this phrase that one of our community partners used when we were talking about sharing each other's posts. Oh, um, high seas raise all ships. So the idea that, like, if one of us is experiencing good things, we all can. Right. And it doesn't have to be about the individual achieving a lot or, or, or wealth or power or anything like that. But the idea mm-hmm. that every aspect of the restaurant or the bar or the hotel, every aspect of the community is vital. It's not disposable. And together, we can actually build the best thing instead of one person's good idea. Yeah. I like that. That's really important. I think there's a lot of overall and it's not just the hospitality industry but it's a lot of competing and it's a lot of like only one of us can win it's like no there's room for all of us like truly yeah and that's one of the most harmful things about white supremacist capitalism this like scarcity mentality that there's only so much to go around so when we are given crumbs we fight over them and i'm going to dive into the whole fight for 15 and unemployment and COVID relief bill thing and democrats have total power and government but like people celebrating that we are maintaining the same unemployment benefits at $300 a week when the demo and I vote le- I'm very far left 
But like prior to the election, Democrats wouldn't pass a bill because there wasn't $600 a week in unemployment benefits and all of these things. And now when we actually have power, we're settling for less. And I find no cause to celebrate that. I'm not going to celebrate no. people have so much giving me crumbs. No one gets right. a whole for that. Right. No, $15 isn't even enough. Like if you look at like, a day, right, like if you, if you base the minimum wage off of like the average, like, uh, cost of rent it would be like $23 an hour mm-hmm. yeah I want I don't like to work for less than 25 personally yeah so <laughs> yeah. um what change do you wish to see within the industry this might be repetitive but I think specifically one of the most tangible ways that's achievable to change the industry right now is changing our approach to health insurance and it might require a change to legislation, but like allowing small independent restaurants to form a health insurance group together so that they can pool resources and payments and enable their staffs to access affordable health insurance as like a group rather than one independent restaurant Mm -hmm. trying to foot the whole bill for that, because that's one of the biggest obstacles for small places and providing what I believe is absolutely necessary in any workplace. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the biggest steps we could take. Um, I also think starting up more worker-run collectives or at least giving workers a share of the power, whether that's um, in profit sharing or in um, like stock sharing, like giving workers an actual piece of ownership. I think that mm-hmm. would be a big step too in how we value whose voices. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. I know there's some restaurants that operate that way, but it's far in between, you know. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Yeah, thanks really for really nice meeting with you. Word vomit. <laughs> no, it wasn't word vomit at all. It was great. Yeah, um, I'm sorry uh, Reagan couldn't be here. I know that she had some other stuff going on um, this past week, but yeah, she she texted me and said she had some crosswires, and I was like, I don't know what crosswires are, but it doesn't sound good, so it's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. I'm excited to, you know, get to know you more over the the future. Thank you so much. This is such a, such a compelling conversation. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good one. You too.